But what really struck me was the chapter on why your brain creates unhappiness. And another way of thinking about it is that we're all born helpless. We feel hunger, but we can't do anything to relieve our hunger. So our brain, both from the um, evolutionary perspective and the developmental perspective, is flooded with threats. So we're all challenged to manage threatened feelings. Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. I'm a behavioral psychology author and researcher, and I'm completely devoted to the pursuit of understanding our brains and how ideas and stories are branded in our minds. Over the past couple of years, I've conducted quite a bit of social research on happiness and the neuroscience implications to being happy. And today, I'm delighted to bring you a conversation with Dr. Loretta Bruning, the author of Habits of a Happy Brain. In this conversation, Dr. Bruning shares why she launched the Inner Mammal Institute to study and share the chemical motivations of happiness. And then she offers simple, practical tools for you to rewire your brain to experience more happiness. You'll enjoy how grounded her approach is in real science, but also how delightful she is. Her book, Habits of a Happy Brain, has been translated to over 12 languages. Meet Dr. Loretta Bruning. Enjoy. Dr. Loretta Bruning, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Hi, nice to be here. I really appreciate the dedication to happiness in the brain. I really am thrilled. I got a chance to really go through your book, and I'm excited to chat to you about your book. But we're going to start off with a fun exercise we call inside the mind, inside the brain. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. So these are seven fun, insightful questions for our audience to get to know you. Coffee or tea? Tea. Too much tea, though. (laughs) (laughs) Movies or theater plays? Um, I did a lot of theater in the past. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Pizza or pasta? Oh, what a hard choice. Pasta. (laughs) Fresh homemade. (laughs) Awesome. Printed books or ebooks? I do a lot of audio, but I have to say I do like a third audio books, a third printed and a third ebooks. (laughs) What a beautiful answer. Dogs <laughs> or cats? Uh, you're going to hate me, but I'm not a pet person. Um, oh, but wow. I love, mo- I love monkeys. <laughs> we'll talk about that. <laughs> Yoga or, or Pilates? <clears throat> Yoga. And then finally, which is a segue question, happiness or joy? Happiness. Amazing. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was fun. I want to start this conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about why you care about happiness. You know, were you ever inconsistently or not consistently happy or did you experience something? Why? Sure. And first, I'm still hung up on the the last question. So I should say that um, to me, joy is like burdening people with unrealistic expectations. So 
course, oh, people wow. may have moments of joy, but I feel like it's, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, but our happy okay. chemicals are not designed to surge all the time. So I don't like it when people feel like there's something wrong with them if they don't have this thing, you know? Um, so I grew up around a lot of unhappiness and I was always trying to figure out what is everybody so upset about? And uh, even sometimes they was blamed on me. So I was even more motivated to understand why other people were unhappy. And so I think that's what motivated me to read a lot of psychology. Uh, but I was never motivated to be a therapist. I didn't want to hear any more of other people's misery. So um, I think because of that, I read psychology in so many different variations and put them together rather than being specialized the way a professional would be. Oh, wow. I love how our past can be so inspiring and reframing and being really, really amazing. I, I used the last nine years with the Inner Mammal Institute. It's very impressive. I love it when someone institutionalizes and puts systems in place to you know, create a foundation for their work. Uh, tell us about the purpose and the work of the Inner Mammal Institute. Sure. So what I was amazed to learn in my um, walk through all kinds of psychology and biology research is that the brain chemicals that make us feel good are inherited from earlier animals. So dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin Monkeys have them. And in monkeys, they create very specific behaviors that are survival behaviors. And humans obviously have the same thing because um, inside, um, you know, the limbic system, which is the part of the brain that we've inherited from earlier mammals, that's what controls our happy chemicals. So we can use our big cortex to restrain our responses, but animals help us understand, oh, so that's the feeling that my chemicals are causing. And it's so easy to see that these impulses are what people really feel. Lovely. What are some of the things that we misunderstand about happiness? I think, you know, before we launch into your actual book, like what are some of the taboos that you have to break? Some of the things and the barriers and the walls you constantly have to come up against when you are touring the world and sharing your work? Sure. Well, there's this idea of the disease model of mental health, that the normal state is to be happy all the time. So if you're not happy all the time, you must have a disorder and a doctor should fix it. And when you go through life with this disease model, then you can't help but think something is wrong with you because nobody has happy chemicals all the time. They evolve to motivate specific behaviors in specific situations. And like a monkey would make bad decisions if it had the wrong chemical at the wrong time. Yeah. Well, did I answer? What we missing. Yeah, you did. Oh, you did. Oh, but I, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I do want to go a little bit further on this question, though, because, you know, the idea that I don't know if it's semantics around the, the word happiness, you know, you, you see is, happiness is similar to love in that the range and the breadth and the depth of, you know, from movies and cinema and how we're conditioned to think about these words. Maybe let's just start with a definition of what is happiness. 
from my perspective, there's four kinds of happiness, dopamine, happiness, serotonin, happiness, oxytocin, and endorphin. So these are different good feelings that make us feel good when a particular need is met. And if you want to go through them, that people can easily say, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. And we want all of them all the time. And it's not easy to get them. So we're always navigating. I, I do think this, the audience... Uh, of this podcast would sort of understand most of these. Uh, but let's just kind of go through them separately real quick, okay? Let's start with dopamine. Sure. Yeah, and we'll go through them from uh, an animal perspective rather than what you hear on the internet or what you hear from the disease model. So okay. dopamine is the expectation of a reward. So a monkey has to look for food all day, every day. And if it's hungry, it looks in the distance, it sees a piece of fruit, that excitement of dopamine turns on. It's like, wow, I can meet my needs. So that's what we're really looking for. Wow, I can meet my needs. So each step, each step closer to the fruit, the monkey gets more dopamine. And that's the good feeling you have when you're um, getting closer to something you want with your own efforts. And once the monkey finally gets the fruit, the dopamine stops. And that's the feeling people know, like when you have some big accomplishment and then maybe the next week you feel sort of let down because yeah. it's really the seeking that stimulates it. Cool. Oxytocin? Oxytocin is from an animal perspective. So the good feeling of being in a herd and having social support allows an animal to lower its guard. So if I'm constantly looking for predators, I can't eat. But when I'm surrounded by others, I can lower my guard and eat. That's the feeling we like. It's like, I have social support, so I can lower my guard. But it's an inherently selfish feeling because mm. if um, if a zebra is lowering their guard so they can eat, it's that's what they want for them. And the other guy gets eaten by the predator. So we like, if we have these idealized expectations about oxytocin, that because our brain is wired in childhood, when you get support every minute of every day, but in the animal world, you're not meant to have oxytocin every minute, because then you would let down your guard at the wrong time and get eaten. <laughs> All right, let's shift to serotonin. Sure. So serotonin is... um the good feeling of being in a position of strength. And we can all see that we love being in the position of strength. I mean, even if you're playing poker and you get a good card, you're like, yeah. So we like that. <laughs> Everybody, what, you know, if you're playing Scrabble and you get a good letter and you want to win. So, but then you're not supposed to want that. You're not supposed to care about that. So you can see that that's the primal level that we want to be in the one-up position, but we're not supposed to do mean things to get it. And in fact, now and today, you're not even supposed to admit that you want it. And yet it's this is what our mammal brain is constantly creating. Now, the problem is in the animal world, if I reach for a piece of fruit and a stronger baboon is next to me, they will bite me. So before I reach for that piece of fruit, I make social comparison and maybe I'll go and look for a piece of fruit over there. So that constant social comparison is what our mammal brain is designed to do. And when you're in the position, if you see yourself in the position of weakness, 
you think, oh, I'm never going to get the piece of fruit. I'm going to starve. That's not what you consciously think, but that's what your inner mammal is thinking. And you could see how we drive ourselves crazy with this. Yeah. And then our final quadrant, endorphins. Sure. Um, so endorphin, the word means endogenous morphine. It's the brain's natural opioid, and it's only released when you're injured in real physical pain, and it masks pain with a good feeling. So if an animal is injured by a predator and its flesh is ripped open, but it needs to keep running. And you felt this, if you ever fall and then you tell people, oh, I'm fine. And then 20 minutes later, you realize you're not fine because endorphin masks pain for 20 minutes. Now, many people have gotten this idea that the way to happiness is to run to the point of pain and then you get a high. And I think that's a very not good way of (laughs) seeking happiness. (laughs) So we could go into that more if you want. Sure. You know, I'm always, let's, let's shift to your, thank you for that. And I see it. Your mammal Institute is really well structured and I'm excited about the work you're doing there. And I will share the website. So people who want to engage with you globally can engage you on the mammal Institute. Let's have a little bit of fun about how your book developed. I'm always amazed at how people narrow themselves, narrow the title. Let's start there. You know, did you have like 10 titles before you narrowed it to this particular title around the habits of a happy brain? Oh, well, that's a great question. And it's a very painful subject for me. So <laughs> I originally, I originally self-published the book with a title that I loved, which was Meet Your Happy Chemicals dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. And I had the good fortune of getting a real commercial publisher some years later. So I'm grateful for that. And they changed the title and their title had value. Um, They made it up. I was not involved in it. And clearly many people search on the word habits and many people search on um, happy and brain. So it checks all those boxes. The algorithm um, approach to publishers, right? One of the the other things, one of the things I'm fascinated by as well is how people dedicate and who they dedicate their books to. You said, this is for David Attenborough, who, told the truth about the conflict in nature and from my wonderful husband, Bill. Why these two dedications? I'm sure the Bill part is obvious, but why David Attenborough? Well, the Bill part is not obvious because um, my husband, in a way, he inspired it in a um, non-obvious way that um, he's a a physicist and he spent most of his life in a lab. So he (laughs) he doesn't acknowledge his feelings. So in a way, he kept that was one of my motivators to sort of explain feelings in a way that he couldn't avoid the factualness of it. Mm, The physics of feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So David Attenborough, um, most people, if they don't know his name, they will know his voice because he narrated most of the nature videos that we had for decades. and. I learned so much from these nature videos about the conflict between monkeys. Um, And academic psychology is mostly giving us an idealized view that monkeys are all empathetic and nurturing and everything. But no, they fight all the time. And David Attenborough showed that because 
He's now in his mid 90s. He's still making nature videos, but he studied this when it was first discovered and before it was taboo to acknowledge it in academia. Oh, and I have to say also, um, once I started learning about him and there's a thick biography of him, when I said everyone would know his voice, I just thought he was the narrator, but he's not. He invented this whole field of doing nature videos and he was behind it from the beginning, from the 1950s. That's interesting. I didn't know that either. I mean, you're right. He's sort of iconic. His voice is so strong that you don't realize. That's interesting. I'm going to look up a yeah. bit more of that and download some of those old videos. Oh, well, so here's a cool thing. So he worked at the BBC when it first started. Now, like, you know, within my lifetime, I mean, there was like no television in the past. And when he worked at the BBC, he was like, oh, what can we do? Oh, well, we have this monkey that somebody is bringing from West Africa. And mm. they brought it into the studio. And um, in those days, it was before video. And it was even before when they brought a performer into a studio, they didn't even do tape it on film because the film was so expensive. Oh, but wow. gradually, step by step, and so he was responsible for managing this monkey and he Incredible. got interested. So then he said, I'm going to go to Africa and film the monkeys in Africa. So that was very complex in the 1950s to ship all of the appropriate equipment there to, to film it. And so then since then, he's just been involved in like the next technology, the next generation of technology to film it even better. And today wow. they could get the eyelashes on the monkeys, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. Wow, yeah, such iconic work. And, and, and you know, when I look at your work and how you structured your book, it was very well structured, very methodical, but also accessible. I mean, you started, you open up the book with, you know, the inner mammal, you shift to about helping people understand the happy chemicals. But what really struck me was the chapter on why your brain creates unhappiness. Can you just give us a bit of a snapshot Sure. And I did um, a few more books on this topic. One of them is called Tame Your Anxiety and the other is called The Science of Positivity. So the idea is that negativity is sort of our natural default state. Um, one reason that people often hear is like we uh, inherited our brains from a dangerous world where you couldn't say, well, I'm not going to go out until they get rid of all the predators because then you'd starve to death. So you had to manage potential danger all the time. And another way of thinking about it is that we're all born helpless. We feel hunger, but we can't do anything to relieve our hunger. So our brain, both from the um, evolutionary perspective and the developmental perspective, is flooded with threats. So we're all challenged to manage threatened feelings. Oh, wow. That's really wonderfully put. And I think, you know, a lot of people, when you are with a partner or in a leadership environment and you start thinking about how people process and internalize unhappiness, I think you'd have a bit more empathy for people if you'd look through that lens, right? Awesome. Yes, yes. And it's it's amazing, you know, when you when you're with a partner and, you, you sort of very aware of their unhappiness and you're not so aware of your own and the same thing in the workplace. And, and thank you, Lorette, for putting exercises in the book. I always feel like these type of books sometimes 
can become so chemical and so, so filled with jargon that we miss the point that people need to engage this, right? They need an action plan. You know, let's shift a little bit. We don't have much time with you and I really appreciate you creating this time, but let's talk about where are some of the starting points for an action plan if you want to be happy? Sure. And I did a workbook on this. It's called 14 Days to Sustainable Happiness. And it's a workbook that you can do in 14 days with simple exercises. And I'm creating the video equivalent of it now. So um, I use the model of 45 days, but people can use if they have a preferred number of days. So the idea is that a lot of repetition is necessary to build a new neural pathway. And all of the things you do today are old neural pathways. All of our emotional responses are wired from past emotions and electricity flows effortlessly into old neural pathways. So that feels like the truth. When you try something new or see something new, electricity doesn't flow down those neurons because they're not developed. So it takes so much effort and energy and focus that you don't really trust it, even though it's more true than the thing you do automatically. But with repetition, those neurons will connect, the pathway will build, and electricity will start to flow if you repeat it. So the bottom line is to reward yourself for repeating it. And I really studied a lot of animal training, and it's just like training an animal. You make the decision, okay, I'm going to choose one new behavior I want to wire in, and I'm going to find a healthy way to reward myself every day and repeat it for 45 days. You know, the most delightful part of your book is sometimes these type of books spill the entire can of beans in the first part of the book. You keep coming with really helpful insights. Like, the chapter around the obstacles to happiness, I found very helpful. What are some, when you look at your research, what are some of the common obstacles that keep people from being happy? Sure. Thank you. Um, so one of them is um, this idea that um, my needs don't matter. I only care about your needs. And I, I understand that there's a lot of social reinforcement for that perspective, But if you think that you're telling your inner mammal, I don't care about you, you're never, you don't matter, you're never going to get anything you want, (laughs) that doesn't trigger your happy (laughs) chemicals. So there's a way to value your own needs, even as you value others. And another, another obstacle is, um, So there's trade-offs between the happy chemicals where um, in order to get one, you got to sacrifice another. So you have to really constantly make decisions and to just celebrate that your brain is designed to do that. It's not that there's something wrong with you, but um, every animal is saying, should I step, take my next step toward a greener pasture or toward the safety of the herd? And what about the step after that? You know, you're male-female survival strategies. You want to unpack that a little bit quickly? Please remind me what, what you meant. Sorry, you wanted to... Oh, I, I was just saying, is, um, maybe, uh, maybe this is what you're thinking about. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember. You're talking about quantity versus quality. Is that yes. what you're thinking? Yes. Yes, yes. okay. <laughs> now I remember, sorry. Okay, so um, in because you're right, in evolutionary biology, there's a concept of reproductive success. 
And that means that our brain evolved to reward us for things that spread our genes. And nobody is consciously thinking that today. And yet your brain rewards you with a good feeling when you do things that spread your genes. Now for males, what spreads your genes is simply speaking a quantity strategy. And for females, what spreads your genes is a quality strategy. So the quality being to have as much survival of your young, because in nature, so many of them die. And to have a quality father is one part of that, but also quality food, quality babysitters. And for males to have as many um, female admirers as possible is in in David Attenborough is clearly the, the core strategy, sure. not the only strategy, but but prime primary. Got it. Thank you for that. And then, you know, when you start looking at some of the tools that we all have with us all the time that we can draw upon, because sometimes people feel like they need to go to a retreat in India. They need to go if they're going to be happy. They have to do, and these things can be very helpful. But some of the basic things that we have at our disposal, um, and guys, please, you can go, please, when you order this book, you will be able to go through this and go through the exercises. But while you ordering for the purposes to get you to go, you know, to be inspired to go and get this work, what are some of the basic tools that we have with us so we can start being happy right away? Sure. Um, so one thing that's interesting is called mirror neurons. We're always mirroring the people around us. So if you want to learn a behavior, hang around a person who's good at that behavior, and you'll see that they enjoy it rather than suffering from it. And that will help to wire you to say, wow, it's possible to enjoy this thing that I want to learn. So that's one of them. And then, you know, the big, really important one is to Break whatever you want to do into small steps and reward yourself for each step. So don't overwhelm yourself with a huge mountain. But if you break it into small chunks, then each step will feel good and you'll actually feel good while you're doing it. Amazing. And then as we close, the final question I have for you is for anyone sitting there going, you know what? I think I'm so much more evolved than these lower mammals I think I am a higher being. I'm chosen by the divine and so forth. And I think there's a gap so wide between my higher evolved consciousness and my lower self. What would you say to them that will inspire them to understand the power and relevancy of the connection between their mammal self and their consciousness? Great question. So first, I'm clearly not saying that we should act like animals or that males should have a quantity strategy versus a quantity strategy. Um, But the point is to understand your own impulses. So the simple answer is that the mammal brain does not process language. So when you are talking to yourself, it's all in your cortex. And your cortex is always, I call it your internal public relations agency. So Mm. it's always coming up with things that make you sound good. And the real feelings and chemical feelings and circuits that control those feelings They have no access to language, so they can't tell you what they're really thinking. And you probably learned when you were young that if you told anybody these feelings, they would say, oh, don't don't think that way. And so that's why your verbal cortex learns the polite way to think. And um, 
that my goal is for two brains to work together. We need both of our brains. They have to work together and you can discover new ways to do that. Dr. Loretta Bruning, thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. Thanks for, thanks for um, talking. It's great. Thanks so much for listening and please do two things for me. One, rate the show. Two, share the link to this episode with someone you care about. Until next time.